We just completely forgot to choose somebody to host this episode. <laughs> Aren't the audience hosting this episode? You know what? They are. <laughs> We're so glad of you to invite us to Outside World Occultism this week. <laughs> we, the hosts of the podcast, being graciously invited again into the homes and gyms and... Uh, I don't know, the clock by your bed that you fall asleep to, the dulcet tones of our voices to, once again. <laughs> to your smart fridges. <laughs> the box underneath your bed. <laughs> the ghost badger that lives in your walls and introduces itself as the eighth wonder of the world. I guess this is how we're starting this episode. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Outside World Occultism, the Toho podcast. I'm Katya, and with me today is the whole crew. We got a full house today. We got me. Hi. JT. Yo. Lavander. Hi. And Duff. Guten Tag. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be probably our first episode of the new year, right? Uh, yes, this will be coming out on New Year's Day. It's going to be the me episode. Get it? Because me is spelled. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's the first episode of the new decade. Oh my god. Oh, I hate that. Which makes it sound like we've been in this business way longer than we actually have. <laughs> <laughs> we've been doing this podcast in two different decades. <laughs> we've actually been in... Uh, Stable fluctuation of time flow here on the Torifune. <laughs> We've actually been here for 10 whole years. We're so glad that the rest of you in this iteration invented the word podcast because we had no idea what to call this the first couple hundred times. <laughs> So this episode is going to be a mailbag episode because we've been just kind of letting mailbag questions accumulate because we either didn't have time in an episode to talk about them or didn't feel like we had enough to say about them. Knowledge. Yeah, or yeah. just declared that we are not doing mailbags in this episode. So we're just going to go through our inbox and answer some or all of the questions that are in our inbox. Yeah, depending on how far we get. And on the questions. Yeah, time permitting. Yeah. If it's a weird question, we might just not, like, be able to answer it at all. Yeah, I think it would be fine if, like, you just gave your opinion on the Seho question, because I don't yeah. think anyone else knows anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me? I'm not going to start with that one, I think. Yeah, we can do that one, like, later. Just to forget about it. It's, like, the <laughs> oldest one that we have here. Yeah. Well, it's, like, a paragraph long... Well, yeah, but still. Really edgy. <laughs> My opinion is already jumping out, but... So, let's start with... <laughs> let's just start with this question from Voyager Witch, who asks, Have you thought about finding some sort of intro slash ending theme for the show? It's not essential, I just find that it helps me get in the mood for and bookend a lot of the talk-heavy podcasts I listen to. Plus, Toho is full of wonderful dojin music you could ask for the use of. I want to answer this by saying that the unofficial official theme of this show is Satellite Torifene from Trojan Green Asteroid, and we have talked about finding somebody to arrange that for us. We can't use the original version because Zune has a prohibition on 
using assets from the games in Dojin Works, basically. Are we doing Dojin work? This counts as a Toho Dojin. You are in a Toho do Dojin. I mean, yeah, I agree with the spirit of the question. I just hadn't thought about the term. It's self-published in the sense that we're paying Podbean <laughs> to publish this for us. So I think this kind of podcast counts as a Dojin, unless John Q. Maximum Fun kicks my door in and starts giving us money. <laughs> 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 but yeah basically we've been discussing the idea of a theme since i think the first episode it's kind of been on the back burner none of us can actually make one and we haven't like had anyone immediately in mind to ask do arrangers take commissions and things we don't know huge numbers of people who work in that sort of area so yeah that's like the one big area of toho fandom we don't have our grubby little fingers in <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know somebody so. who does chiptunes, but they're very tired. If you do have some suggestions for who to ask. I don't want to commission people who mostly do things for fun. If you're a Toho Ranger and are interested in working on something for this, hit us up, I guess. We all have a lot of irons in the fire outside of this podcast. So in terms of like having to track down people who do the music and all of that, we will probably someday maybe get to it eventually, depending on how long we keep doing this, but... We'll get to it in the next decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somewhere in our second decade of doing the podcast, we will hopefully have that taken care of. And obviously, if you or someone you know wants to do it, then obviously we'd pay you and stuff. It wouldn't be for free or anything, just to clarify. <laughs> We are morally opposed to paying people in exposure and have no exposure with which to pay you, so we would have to use money. <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, I'm mostly going to say this on the show so that I finally get off my butt and publish all of it and make a post about it and so on, but we do have transcription. Hooray! And we found somebody to transcribe our episodes for us, and they are a person in the Toho fandom. So shout out to Lyric Alive for doing that, and we pay them industry rates. So if you want to do a thing for the show, like a title or whatever, or art for like banner backgrounds and that kind of thing, we do pay money for that. <laughs> As opposed to paying in cheese. Yes. Although we will pay in cheese if, like, you don't take whatever money, if you're some kind of, like, cartoon mouse. Faye being who prefers baked goods or curdled dairy products. Like, I think we can exchange money for goods and services. If you're, like, a yokai who has no use for money, we can exchange money for goods and services and give you those. <laughs> <laughs> We're flexible. Okay, um... That's the thing. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Anonymous says, I'd like to know what everyone's favorite obscure reference is in Toho, whether it be mythological, scientific, about another series, etc. I think my frame of reference is pretty off because I'm deep in the soup of obscure mythology research myself, so I don't actually have an answer for this. I love all of Renko's little, like, science jokes and sort of Mary's misunderstandings of them in the Ceiling Club books, but, like, I did a minor in physics, so those don't really strike me as obscure. I Are they obscure to... You can still talk about those, because... They are obscure. I think we're just, like, three out of five people with sort of backgrounds in physics. 
<laughs> My personal favorite is Yumemi Okazaki's name because it's a reference to Okazaki fragments and the two biologists, Reiji and Sutneko Okazaki, who discovered them. All of the Toho names that are references to things that exist outside of fantasy, I think, are really cool. Do you think Matarajin is an obscure Toho reference? I feel like she's the highest profile reference to Matarajin outside of, like, scholarship of Japanese religion. So I feel like she counts as obscure, even if she's very high profile in Toho. (laughs) Even if Matarajin is probably going to be less obscure relatively quickly, because that's what happened to the Sua Grand Shrine after (laughs) Mountain of Faith. Like Zoom describes that in his interview about it. And also the thing with people who aren't that deep into Japanese mythology enjoying Toho is that they, or I mean including we, often don't really know how obscure a reference is. It's gonna be new information anyway, a lot of the time. Sakume is probably actually my favorite obscure reference. Yeah, she's cool. But one thing I was reminded of, because... I was so proud that I, like, accidentally discovered it on my own, is that the likely reason, in my opinion, that Parsi has this, like, Persian theme is that Hashi, which obviously means bridge and is in the name of her species Hashihime, is also an old Japanese name for Persia. Oh. There's some long-reach other explanations too, I think, but, I mean, that's the most immediately obvious to me. We all know how Zen likes to run with a pun, if Komachi is any indication. But uh, that's one of my favorites, because I don't know how obscure it is to a Japanese person with any knowledge of history, but I think it's pretty obscure in the West, at least. Yeah, I certainly didn't know that before you mentioned it before this episode, so like... Vindication. We can credit you with knowing that (laughs) in the context of Parsi in the West, at the very least. I think that very few people in Toho fandom, certainly in the West, when they think of Parsi, think of, like, her relationship to ancient Persian Zoroastrians. (laughs) I mean, I did, but at the time I got into Toho, I was also studying Zoroastrianism, so... (laughs) Oh. Just five steps ahead about the rest of us. Tell me to stop getting hyperfixated on religions. <laughs> I mean, who am I to talk? Okay, next question. This one's also from Anonymous. I think most of these are from Anonymous people. All of them except for one are from Anonymous people. Yeah, and we've already talked about that person's question. Um, anyway, Anon- Anonymous says, uh, what, what hey. do you consider the... What? Are you ready for Meillä on podcast menossa. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey. Bye. Sano hei. Oh, it's amazing. Bye. Okay, don't laugh. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Sano hello. I love you, mate. Bye. Just, just so you know, this bit's staying in the episode because it's the audience. Well, it's an audience episode. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That was an audience contribution, yes. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. <laughs> what were we talking about? Next question. When do you consider the end of the classic Toho era and the beginning of the modern Toho era to have happened? Also, do you think the Toho has moved past the modern era into a new era? And if so, when? End of classic Toho is the phantasm stage of Toho 7. I do not take constructive criticism. (laughs) 
And I'm not talking about, like, classic and modern Windows Toho. I'm talking about, like, there are exactly two philosophies of Toho's creation that I think Zune has moved from one to the other of, and that's what I consider classic and modern Toho. Mm. That makes sense. I guess I'd have trouble kind of splitting them into two parts if we had to go with classic and modern or anything. Well, we can split it into three according to the question. I mean, one division in my mind is probably like after Imperishable Night, since there's the idea that the first Toho trilogy, so to speak, the PC trilogy, until Ian was, for instance, soon mentioned wanting to have enough playable characters for the duo system in Ian, which is an oddly specific goal, but okay. <laughs> he could have brought back Mima, that's all I'm gonna say. Obviously, there's also other answers like Mountain of Faith and stuff, but they're all in the like same general era, give or take a few games, and... Yeah. That marks the like general shift in Zun's attitude to the series and world building. And I personally don't think that there's any actual difference in how relevant those things are. I just think it's basically if you're in modern Toho as such, you're more likely to be misappearing in the manga. Yeah, I like I was gonna take issue with breaking Windows Toho into two disparate eras because I feel like there's been more than that. Yeah, there's been like three, I think. And just when does alone? Maybe four. Maybe four, yeah. Actually, probably four. I can't say I've really thought about this very much. I think about too many things. Since you brought up the Phantasm stage as like this sort of breaking point between quote-unquote classic Toho and modern Toho. In PC-98 is part of classic Toho in my take also. Yeah. I forgot to say that. But. Yeah, looking at Toho as a whole, PC-98 included, like, I would definitely agree with you, actually, that PCB Phantasm stage marks the shifting point there, and then Imperishable Night, even though it's part of, like, a sort of original trilogy of Windows games, is definitely a turning point for Zone in terms of Gensokyo as a region and sort of what happens in it. Just its development as, like, a place and not the setting, I think. Do you get what I mean by a place and not a setting? Yeah, like where Zun really starts to think about Gensokyo as its own concrete location that things happen in instead of just a backdrop for, you know, silly stories about vampire maids and going to hell or whatever. Even though those things continue to happen, they're now in a world that is much more real. Yeah, the setting has more inertia. It doesn't just disappear and get reshaped at the whims of the current plot so much as the plot has to be something generally that takes place in the setting. Yeah, Yeah, if the plot doesn't fit with the setting, well, that isn't going to be a Toho plot then. I think that's also why so many Toho plots go back to the status quo, because it's hard to develop a world and then the impact of people's foolish decisions on the world with as much detail as Toho has already developed. Yeah, Yeah, and I do think that the Phantasm stage of Perfect Cherry Blossom specifically is like a very good marker of this shift, simply because it introduces Yukari, who has a very pivotal role in Gensokyo, and its creation and she's the one in charge she's the one who establishes gensokyo as having a history and not simply a present yeah 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 yeah. and that's why her appearance is sort of i think what marks the shift and see i think that that's true in a sense but i think that a lot of the yukari significance and imperishable night i think just developed a lot more retroactively i would actually put the tipping point as 
not necessarily a game, but between Bohemian Archive and Perfect Memento. The different approaches of Bohemian Archive, which is sort of this collection of profiles and character vignettes, and then Perfect Memento, which is a in-setting document that provides a specific, and certainly Aya in Bohemian Archive provides a viewpoint, but it's not serving any single purpose. Whereas Perfect Memento and Symposium later on are looking at the setting, but from a very defined point of view with a single intent in that document, which is, you know, compiling information for Perfect Memento and then the conference of Symposium. And I think the thing about those is that Yukari's presence is very clearly felt in them. Yes. And I think that that makes her appearances earlier more significant, but I don't think that those appearances themselves are the break point. Because remember, Yukari being a sage isn't even mentioned in her profile in Perfect Cherry Blossom. Her being a sage isn't mentioned, no, but like the entire fact that A, the Hakurei barrier is a thing that has specific traits outside of just being a vague fantasy wall, and B, the fact that she has something to do with it, Reimu also has something to do with it. It certainly establishes a history, but I don't think that that's a... I think a history is actually a really important part of a setting being developed as a world and not as a setting. Oh, certainly, but I don't think it's a singular turning point. It's important for the setting, but I don't think it's, if I were picking any one single turning point for Toho, I don't think I would pick that because there were, games have been influenced by past events and build up before. I think Mountain of Faith is particular in that it's the first game to be developed fully with Zune's new idea of the setting in mind, but I don't think that it, like, I don't think that it caused the new conception of the setting. I don't think that it... No. I don't think it's a singular turning point either. I think it's just basically the effect of Zune changing his thinking. If I were actually dividing Toho, the breakpoints I would choose would be Lotus Land Story, which is the first game to really settle on what is a Toho game. Then mm-hmm. a late Perfect Cherry Blossom or Imperishable Night as sort of the point where the classic Toho gets these modern ideas. And then Mountain of Faith as the deliberate implementation of them. And even after that, I would make a little sub mark at double dealing character just because that's the first time we've seen the main story arc change yeah toho is probably pretty bad to change into classic and modern eras in the first place simply because it's a holistic sort of evolution and not an abrupt change yeah it's not like when people talk about sonic the hedgehog having classic and modern sonic Right, those are very different. They I mean, they made a whole game over those being different. <laughs> yeah, I think that people think of classic and modern Toho as being just as different, and I kind of take issue with that, honestly. I mean, I think they are in the sense that... I mean, they are that different, but it's... There's a gradient in the middle, though. Yeah. Going from Wily Beast and Weakest Creature to Embodiment of Scarlet Devil gives you some whiplash, but it, 
There's not a game along the way, any single point where Zun decided to do everything differently. There is no Sonic adventure of Toho, as much as some people would like to say embodiment of Scarlet Devil is. (laughs) (laughs) I think one reason Zun's thinking is kind of hard to, like, approach and classify like that is that, I mean, the whole mindset of working on a setting without realizing it's a setting is something I can't really sympathize with, since I always, like spend five years working on a setting before I do anything with it. <laughs> it's just hard to get into the mindset. I think it, that it comes from Zoom developing Toho as first, places to put his music, secondly, games, and thirdly, stories with characters. I mean, yeah, obviously, but that's a hard mindset to get into. If you try to look at the whole series as some kind of clear hole with uh, him making specific, like franchise-wide decisions somewhere along the way. I don't think those exist. He just comes up with stuff along the way. I do think that JT bringing up gradients is definitely the most relevant thing to this question because it is, I think, a series of moments in Zun's writing where it sort of crosses the boundary from one to the other. And that also is a reason why I would say that I don't think it's specifically any one game or work or anything like that, but I do think it's sort of the introduction of specific characters and concepts. And then as they develop, it brings Toho into new eras, quote-unquote. And so that's why I would stick with Yukari as a major turning point. Yeah, I think that she kind of symbolizes the change in thinking, even if she isn't the culmination of the change in thinking. Yeah, Yukari is kind of the changing as a wider character, but not necessarily any single appearance. Yeah. Yeah. She's kind of the... The embodiment. Yeah. She's central to the shift. (laughs) I won't dispute that. It's just the... I think that PCB Phantasm is still a little early for that to have, you know, taken effect. Yeah, it is such an iconic thing, though, that it's like a unique stage in Toho that has never been replicated. And it sort of really drives home the fact that Yukari is such a powerful presence in Toho. On some level, it's kind of like silly and sometimes exaggerated how people like to rank the characters by what stage they're appearing and stuff like that as if it was like a direct representation of power or something stage one you go well she's an exception for a lot of reasons but anyway (laughs) yeah even then even though the idea is simplified the phantasm stage is kind of special i feel like it being named phantasm is also kind of important to it being special that's kind of what Gensokyo is. And I feel like that sort of embodies Gensokyo starting to represent something rather just than just being something. And if there were ever a new phantasm stage in some game, it would have to be like a massive event, given how much of a like reputation that term has developed in the fandom. Yeah, definitely. So I, I would like to move on to another question. And this one is relevant, actually, uh, to this question, discussion we've been having, which is another question from Anonymous who asks, what do you think about Zun as a writer? I feel that his writing doesn't get talked about nearly as much as his music or game design. He's an excellent writer, but he has no intention of doing writing most of the times when he does excellent writing. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like there's a reason why his writing doesn't get talked about nearly as much, and that (laughs) is that he is a musician and game designer first, and a writer second. We kind of bring it up whenever we talk about some of his written works. At least, I guess we've kind of reached a consensus that he's better as a short-term writer than a long-term one. He would be fine as a long-term writer, but only if he had to write it all in one go and publish all in one go, like 
a novel rather than a manga. Yeah, and especially with endings. Yeah, stuff like Curiosities of Lotus Asia or Symposium of Postmysticism are really good as standalone works. Curiosities of Lotus Asia is kind of unique because the first bit was kind of put pretty close together. He's good at like making characters and building the setting, but when he has to attach a like years-long plot to it, like obviously it mostly consists of like shorter snippets, like the individual events in like Horned Hermit or Forbidden Scrollery. But when he has to wrap up the whole plot, or what resembles a plot, then it tends to be kind of anticlimactic, because the whole manga was never about the plot. Yeah, the problem is that Zun has a conclusion in mind, and then he writes towards that conclusion. And if he's doing a very long-term project that spans years, then sometimes things happen along the way that might make that conclusion fall flat. And that's a problem that I think he should think a little bit more about. Like when he's writing, he should sort of consider the developments that characters have made as he has come up with new ideas. If he's going to come up with a manga, he should probably think about when he's writing the big characterization beats. Is this going to fit with my predetermined ending? Yeah. The recent Wily Beast and Weakest Creature interview, he sort of talked about how he felt like maybe the themes and message of Wily Beast was not really received by people, and... Yeah, especially Keiki in general. Yeah, especially Keiki, and I feel like, in my experience, that wasn't really true, because we spent a whole episode <laughs> talking about the themes and messaging of Wily Beast, and we sort of picked <laughs> up on all the stuff that he talked about in that interview. Yeah, go us. It might just be a perfect storm of people who love thinking about things too much with us here in particular. <laughs> yeah, for us, I, I think that might just be biased because we spend our time overthinking Toho. And then we did get into several very, very long arguments about like who Keiki is as a person and stuff like that just in the Discord with other random people. So maybe the messaging didn't land everywhere or people misinterpreted it or whatever. I mean, it's not like there is not a history of messaging falling extremely flat in Toho. Yeah, we could talk about that all day. We have. We could talk about that for an entire episode specifically about that instead of three episodes worth spread across all of our episodes. But I mean, Keiki at least was a pretty classic example in that wasn't the actual end result supposed to be kind of gray, but as usual with that kind of thing, people took it in both directions to the extremes instead. Yeah, people decided specifically there has to be a hero and there has to be a villain. Thanks, John Calvin. I think that that's also sort of a thing in a lot of media analysis nowadays, Uh but that's a story for another year. Yeah, but as far as Zun's writing, I think he doesn't usually, like, write the story about the message that he's trying to kind of get across, in the sense that the message itself isn't usually, like, displayed front and center and highlighted in the story itself. There's no big bit at the end of Wily Beast where they start debating it or anything (laughs) they just show up and they yell at each other and there's some ambiguous dialogue and then they fight as usual just wait for the yakuza symposium (laughs) (laughs) oh please (laughs) yeah he doesn't usually like devote a lot of writing space to in-depth discussion of the themes which i mean that's fine the themes they're not necessarily supposed to be like shoved down your throat but 
the end result is that they're easy to miss, kind of. He tells a story and he has a theme and they don't necessarily interact. Like, I compare Zuna a lot to the late, great Terry Pratchett as far as a world builder and someone who works in, you know, fantasy as reflections of modern life. Pratchett was much more particular in all of his works where he, especially later on, he had the theme picked out and he knew exactly... Like, the whole story was sort of built around that, whereas I think Zun is a bit more oblique. This is kind of doing Zun a disservice, because I don't <laughs> think that he just throws in his themes at the end of the work. I think he does actually think about the theme when developing the work, but to him, yeah. it's more important that the work comes off as just, like, something that could happen, because... You can interpret a theme from any series of real-life events, but it usually takes a little bit more finagling. I think that's about what Chedi was saying, that Zun also has the theme, that, but he doesn't like build the story around it. And yeah. that doesn't make it worse, but it does make it a lot easier to miss or and interpret that differently. I think Zun definitely like has very strong feelings about a lot of stuff that he writes into his work, and I think he's very conscious about trying to present that in a way that doesn't come off as preachy, to use his own words. He says like if you have a game where the characters just kind of preach the moral at you, then that's not a fun game. Nobody wants to play that. Nobody wants to be preached at. Nobody willingly wants to interact with Kasen Ibaraki judging them for the way they live their life. <laughs> the moral is important, but it shouldn't be what your work hangs off of yeah and that's the c.s lewis side of things to compare another fantasy author right he's, <laughs> he's very occupied with not being c.s lewis which fair but i think yeah. there's lessons to be learned in terms of does your story seeming like ordinary events work against your theme and i think that's the part that he doesn't account for as much i don't think it works against the theme like in a vacuum i think that some people are just very good at interpreting real life events to fit what they want them to mean and a story seeming like real life events could naturally lead to people interpreting it like what they want them to mean because that's what they do in real life yeah this is a bit of a downer train of thought but Obviously, in Discworld, the themes become a lot more obvious and sort of Terry Pratchett starts to beat you over the head with them, kind of, as he grows older and starts to struggle with Alzheimer's. So that's really reflected in his later books. And I do feel like Zun has, in the more recent games, obviously, like, very obviously put a lot more thought into his messaging, kind of. And the yeah. things that he wants to yeah. talk about, like, especially, like, Okina and I think a lot of the stuff in Wily Beast and Weakest Creature about, like, automation. Hecardia. I know we talk about alternative facts being basically Zoom beating you over the head with stuff, but I feel like it does also bring up some subtler stuff, too, even though it is basically a parody. And in that sense, it's actually kind of in line with the newer games than it seems in its initial obviousness. Because of this, I do wonder if as Zun gets older and sort of... Develops Alzheimer's? No. 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 It's no. oh, no. <laughs> not good. We don't joke about that. There are some things that are sacred. Don't speak this evil into the world. <laughs> Sorry. Uh... 
It is a fact that as you get older, you start sort of thinking about your place in the world and what you sort of are putting out there and like what kind of impact you're leaving behind. That's like lifespan psychology 102. Yeah. Now that Zoon is in his 40s, I think that that is becoming a little bit more obvious because when you're a college kid, you literally don't think about the impact of what you're doing. So I do wonder if we're going to start seeing a lot more of that in future work. And obviously Zoon is still young. I think we'll see a healthy amount, not like just be inundated with morals, but... I think we'll see him pushing a little bit on how far it can go within his standards that maybe people will get it. Within what makes him comfortable. Yeah. We'll do a new episode on this question about Toho 30. See where we're then. (laughs) (laughs) May Zun have a long and blessed life and make many Tohos for us to make podcasts about. But I do want to end this question on a joke, which is that the light fantastic and the color of magic are PC-98 Discworld. (laughs) Accurate. Yeah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You you say it. That's true. (laughs) You did it. You broke down the PC-98 and Windows divide to its bare essentials. Bring back Rincewind. I guess two flower, really, because Rincewind does come back on occasion. Yeah. Rincewind is Yuka. Oh my god. <laughs> Somebody please draw that fan art. I who is, who is the moist von Lipvig of Toho? Is it Sumirako? It might be Sumirako. I feel like it's Sega. <laughs> There's a lot of different levels on that question. She's a lot nastier than moist, but the average person is nastier than the, the average Sega is absolutely someone who Yukari would conscript into fixing up something for her own reasons. But would she do it? (laughs) I don't think she has the capacity to learn. The average Toho is nastier than the average Discworld character. Yeah, exactly. So I think that Sega would fit. Yeah. Anyway, this has been our Discworld podcast. Discworld's so good. Please read Discworld if you haven't. please. I think it's definitely, like, the closest there is to Toho in Western uh, literature. Although with a bit less self-awareness in the earlier work in my onion. It's more that the earlier works are more directly parodies rather than just a thing in the genre. Yeah. Yeah. Much like Gensokyo was in early Toho works. So when are we doing our Disco Discworld Discord podcast? (laughs) (laughs) we'll have to discover that (laughs) this next question is sort of also related to zone's writing so i figured i'd slot it in here anonymous says the phrasing of guests to talk the side cast of toho manga gives me the image of chireki den as a vlog channel and wild and horned hermit as a talk show and if i recall correctly i heard that zone gave his idea of how a live action toho was in one of the interviews i heard about that but i don't remember that like what he actually said what would you want most out of a live-action Toho that doesn't just cover the canon story? Toho, my brother, my brother, and me. I'd say <laughs> sketch. I mean, base. Yeah, I'd say take half the Mabembam TV show and half a like Showa era common writer. <laughs> that is the perfect <laughs> mixture of tone and content that I would want from a live-action Toho series. I mean, basically, there's some like new elements that come with it being live-action, but. I mean, story-wise, I'd expect it to be something similar to the other print works. Yeah. It would have to be, like, a Netflix series. (laughs) Oh my god, a Netflix Toho series. Yeah, like, about a brand new incident happening, and Raymo Hackery and her pal Melissa have to... (laughs) (laughs) 
played by Griffin and Travis McElroy. <laughs> I mean, if I had to say one thing, I suppose that a live-action version would probably be best served by being kind of low-key, probably. Most of the side works already are, so that's not a huge leap. But, I mean, the biggest glaring issue with live-action tends to be in the visuals, obviously. Well, obviously the story and everything else matters, but the visuals, if they're weird or just plain bad, tend to be the immediate breaking. It would take a huge budget to make something convincingly Toho, unless it was something along the lines of earlier mentioned Mbembem Kahneman Rider. And the usual problem with making like live action adaptations of anime and anime similar like art styles is that which I mean I know it's a big thing and all but even from looking at the examples that we do have it's usually either the characters have to look like cosplayers basically in which case they're closer in design but probably don't look very convincing and it might be weird to look at them try to be serious or actually carry a plot or they need to be like redesigned to be more realistic and easier to do in a live action context, which it wouldn't not work. Toho's especially would have that difficulty because how exactly are you supposed to portray human but otherworldly while not looking like a cosplayer? Right. Like, I do think that it's possible if you have really good costumers to adapt Toho costumes into a live action TV show sort of thing. But it would have to be like, they would not look like just like straight up. Toho cosplay. And I think that would be fine if you just had everyone sort of in more low-key but still very fancy, ruffly fashion. That already happens within the series. All the artists do their own designs basically every time they draw a character and it's a big part of the series in my opinion and it works usually pretty well so I think if it was done well people would be pretty thrilled even to see like these live-action adaptations of the designs. Yeah. I do think the the story would have to be like a bingeable Netflix TV show sort of thing where the whole story gets released at once or whatever. Yeah. I don't know how well it would be suited to like a serial or a movie sort of thing. I think a movie adaptation of one of the games could work, but I think if it was a TV show... As an original work, it would be... Not good. <laughs> I think we need to have a, like, two-movie recap series of the entire franchise. I think that's <laughs> too much to fit into two movies. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> I think for two movies you could do that if it's just Remu, Marisa, and Sane at a party telling tall tales or something. Like, you do it like, like Rashomon but Toho. And so it's all of them, <laughs> you know, relating whatever incident, you know, back to back and... Like, you could do it like that with, like, a framing device, but... When my shrine first got destroyed, I turned Hell and Makai upside down looking for who did it. Yeah. And also, <laughs> one thing with retelling the canon stories is that there's already a ton of that in every fan anime and a ton of doujins. The main game plots have been told a million times over. Yeah, so what I personally would want to see is a Netflix-style TV show that has a new incident of some kind that needs to be addressed, and very minimal Danmaku stuff. Make it like one of the manga, basically, where there's not a whole lot of action, and it's just the characters trying to resolve some kind of supernatural incident. Just chilling. 
I think that could work really well, actually. Yeah, it could be like a incident per season or, you know, if there's just one season, then just one incident kind of thing. Yeah, either that could work or you can just go full Riverdale with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> just make the absolute most cursed Toho TV show of all time. No. With just absolutely insane characterization and story beats and everyone is like canonically a teenager, but they're played by like 40-year-old people. <laughs> Scarlett Johansson is Raymo. Um, <laughs> no, I mean Scarlett Johansson would have to be Romilia. <laughs> It's every single person. It's ScarJo's one-woman act. She just has a bunch of wigs. ScarJo is everybody except for Romelia and Patchouli and Yukari. It's just called Embodiment of Scarlet. <laughs> Ironically, I do think that Scarlett Johansson would make a great Yukari. <laughs> I mean, as we established, Yukari is white. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get any more out of that question. I think we just killed it and buried it. So uh, what's next? Yeah. <laughs> Do we want to go with me tearing apart the Seho question now? Oh, no. Yeah, you know what? Let's do that. So Anonymous says, Do you like the fan theory that Seho takes place after Toho and the Hifu CDs in a post-apocalyptic techno-hell world, i.e. the logical conclusion to the night dystopia that Renko and Mary are in? Personally, the absence of the Hakurei barrier and Marisa having become more or fully yokai through growing organic wings in Seho 1's extra stage was always interesting to me. A destroyed slash merged with the outside world Gensokyo is a really cool concept. Besides the inherent misconceptions in the question, Seho doesn't even have a setting in the first place. Yeah, so before you really get into this, do you want to explain to the audience what the heck Seho is? And to half the podcast. Seho is Zun's friend's from back in his college and early game dev games, making a parody of Toho, mixing the average shooter of the time with like airplanes and stuff with Toho in that you actually get to see the pilots and they have conversations. But basically the setting is essentially non-existent. The only basic gist of the setting you get is, well, there isn't any oil right now and everything runs on cactus juice. Yes, really. <laughs> the rest of the games are mostly just... Wait a second, just... wait a second, wait a second. Toho yes. 17.5 is about oil. What if it's going to confirm that Seho is real? <laughs> <laughs> no, it would have to be about cactus juice if it was. The plot of Toho 17.5 is actually caused by Totetsu getting absolutely blazed on cactus juice. <laughs> Totetsu is... The whatever, his name is Eric, I think. The person who created the protagonist of Seho 1 and 2, Vivit. Who is a robot maiden or whatever. Yeah, she's a robot maid, made in the appearance of this dude's presumed to be dead, but actually in a different dimension that is not explained how to get to at all, daughter. Anyway, there are also a bunch of misconceptions in the question that have kind of been driving me insane ever since it first came up. First off, Marisa has wings in PC-98 Toho. She just has them. 
even in Phantasmagoria of Dim Dream, she uses wings in her special attack against you, so I don't think that's really an indicator of her becoming a yokai. And secondly, there's no indication that there's no Hakurei barrier either. <laughs> For that matter, the setting of the extra stage is completely different to the setting of the main game stages, which would indicate that there is some difference in the first place. There's a lot of, I think, very baseless assumptions. The reason that Rainbow and Marisa are in this at all is because Zun was like, I'll just put my characters in my friend's game as like a little cameo or whatever. Yeah, like I know that you can make fanon off of less founded things than this, but also even in universe within this ridiculous parody, it's literally called Western Project. <laughs> All really know about Seho is that where the winged yuka comes from, right? It's where yuka with the really messed up teeth comes from, yeah. <laughs> I just like winked yuka, that's basically all I know about Seho. Or do you mean the yuka wink emoji? No, I mean yuka with yuka wings. With wings. Oh, wings yuka, yeah. Sorry, I thought you said wink yuka. <laughs> wink yuka. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I think that uh, Destroyed slash Merged with the Outside World Gensoku is actually just kind of an annoying concept in the first place. Because a lot of people tend to just use it for, well, we were talking about this in an earlier episode, but just baseless angst. I think the issue isn't so much the destruction of Gensokyo, it's just that people always take that to be the most sort of tedious interpretation of it. People always think that it's some sort of apocalyptic event. I mean, it is in the literal sense. I, I mean, not the literal, literal sense. No one has used the literal sense of apocalyptic <laughs> for as long as no one has used the literal sense of literal. So... <laughs> Longer. It's not like the biblical sense of an apocalypse. Well, it is. Yeah. It is. It's not what apocalypse has come to mean in the English language, but what apocalypse was in the original biblical Greek, I think. Yes, mm -hmm. the original Greek, not the original biblical Latin or English, even. Yeah. So yeah, people tend to just presume that this would be oh, it would result in some all-out war between humans and yokai, blah blah blah, or it would slowly lead to all yokai being destroyed, blah blah blah. When in reality it would just probably, if the barrier of logic between Gensokyo and the outside world was destroyed, that would probably just mean that the outside world was back to thinking how it did back in the 1500s in regards to fantasy. Yeah, and I do think that describing like a sci-fi shmup world as the logical conclusion to the nigh dystopia that Renko and Mary are in is sort of flawed just because it's almost a little bit too optimistic because shmups sort of come to the assumption that there's like the freedom to use the technology of the world in a fashion of that way. Yeah, like, I don't know that the kind of techno-hell world that shows up in Seiyo is in any way the logical conclusion of the sort of eternal dystopia of carefully micromanaged environments that Renko and Mary find themselves in. I sort of hate the notion of something being the logical conclusion anyway, because yeah, that's not how logic works. There is yeah. no logical conclusion to something unless you know, like, every single working part. 
And you're also a robot. You only know a logical conclusion to something if you have a definition of all of the rules by which it could change. There's a a sensible or understandable conclusion, maybe, but... Which the techno-hell world turning into a shmup also isn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's just my personal soapbox that rational gets overused a lot when people mean, I think this sounds reasonable. Yeah. Logical is a much stronger descriptor than reasonable. I think yeah. that people actually have a tendency to think that their theories are logical rather than just reasonable. Yeah. Are answers like these the reason everyone sends us asks on anonymous Yeah, we're very sorry for sort of tearing this question apart, but... We haven't been that mean to anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Yet. We're very sorry for being mean about this question, but... I'm sorry, but it's kind of silly. (laughs) (laughs) We really didn't know how to answer this question for a really long time, and we just figured, like, screw it, we'll just address the flaws with it. (laughs) Well, there isn't really much content other than... Blatant misinterpretation of Seho and Toho, and then edgy theory that pervades the Western fandom. That's, I think, the edgy theory thing is the thing that we're going to talk about a little bit more in a second, because our next question is, what would Reimu do if Marisa loses her humanity? Give her a big hug. Yeah. (laughs) And this people love to ask this question after that Forbidden Scrollery episode, and really what it comes down to is does marisa qualify as a human from the village and at this point i do not believe she does i don't think she's qualified as human from the village ever since she ran away when she was like 12 yeah yeah i don't think she's qualified since story of eastern wonderland yeah but even before story of eastern wonderland she had probably run away before then i don't think that's the like only part of the question really since there's obviously other implications to Marisa becoming a yokai while Remus is a human. I think that's the reason most people ask the question. There's definitely more interesting things you can do with a question like this, though. Yeah. Yeah. Without, like, further indication, I wouldn't go for the first, like, interpretation that it's about... What was the word again for splitting someone's head open in a fancy Latin? (laughs) (laughs) Uh... Hmm. Bifurcation? Bifurcation, yeah. I don't think the first interpretation is that they're asking if Remo would have to immediately bifurcate Marisa or anything. It's just that (laughs) (laughs) there's, like, you know, wider issues to address. I feel like there would probably be some conflict with Remo's role as Hakurei Shrine Maiden and her being girlfriends with the yokai for sure because she rationalizes a lot of the whole being friends with yokai thing as oh i'm not really friends with them they just mostly annoy me whereas if it was marisa it would be very hard for her to distance herself in the same way so she might have a tiny little bit of a crisis of identity there but i don't think there would be much of an impact on marisa besides well my girlfriend's kind of Lately. This question, it's coming from the perspective of Reimu, so like, I guess we're working from the assumption that Marisa is like cool with whatever transformation she has undergone in order to become a yokai. Marisa's just chillin'. Don't at her, she's chillin'. Yeah, I think genuinely the only thing that can really happen is that Reimu will defeat Marisa in a Damako battle and be like, don't forget, I can kick your ass, so don't try any shit. And Marisa would be like, love a girl who can kick my ass. 
I don't think there would be many consequences besides just Remu maybe questioning her role in the world, which she does basically on a biannual basis anyway, so. Yeah, I do think it would change their relationship. Yeah, it definitely would. They wouldn't necessarily, like, stop being as close as they are, but it would definitely have a different flavor, I guess. Yeah, and in the long term you run into the same immortal angst that you run into with every human non-human relationship in Toho basically but that's in the long term and it's not really anything to do something about yeah it's just like oh that's gonna be unfortunate but it's the same thing as if your partner is 10 years younger than you and you got together when one of you was 40 and the other one was 50 you know that your partner is probably going to outlive you unless they have a condition that undermines their health when I need to come up with some kind of like positive explanation, there's like vaguely the option of Remu doing something Sanae-ish somewhere down the road. Or just accidentally having that happen to her because she kind of is a cultural icon of Gensokyo. Yeah, it wouldn't be <laughs> a surprise to me for sort of like my own future Gensokyo theories I got off a friend is Remu is sort of a natural pick to be deified as like the patron of Danmaku fights and spell cards. Yeah, she sort of is the embodiment of their evolution from just yokai kicking each other's asses, but in a pretty way, to a really interesting, non-lethal method of beautiful competition. Yeah. Seeing as supposedly Remu is, like, about as recognizable to Japanese children as Pikachu or something, I think we can say that she's already a god by cultural importance. <laughs> This means that Pikachu is a god. Yeah. I mean, we all knew that. Fat Pikachu is the only god that I <laughs> I've always thought that it might be interesting if Remu became a hermit, actually. It would be really interesting. I don't know if she would, though, because of the association with Kasin and the other annoying hermits in Ginsokyo. Unless she actually became a, well, Western conception of the term hermit-like hermit. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. think the biggest obstacle in the way of this possibility is just Raymu's personality and just her own attitude towards working. Yeah, because being a hermit requires a, a lot of extraordinary work and spiritual training and so on. And I don't think Raymu would be willing to put in that much effort. Yeah. So I think if she does become some kind of immortal creature... It would probably be accidental. Yeah, it would be either accidental or in a very passive way that she herself does not really have any sort of forceful influence in. Like, I think that the idea of Remu not being just an ordinary human is something that even Remu herself would sort of mostly rail against. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I could see Marisa becoming a hermit, honestly, but I don't think it's as easy to see for Remu. Because that's just sort of not the type of person that she is. Honestly, my super hot take is that if Remu wasn't a shrine maiden, she would definitely be the one of the two to end up as a yokai, and Remu and Marisa would be the one of the two to end up as a hermit. I mean, I don't think she has any practical reason to end up as a hermit as opposed to a yokai magician. Yeah, I think that Marisa 
is personally not interested in the spiritual training, basically. She's not a spiritual person. She's not even slightly religious. She spends a lot of time sort of teasing Reimu about being as religious as she is. Yeah. I'm most mostly meant one of them would probably just end up as a sort of human with a bonus that lives for absolute ages, and one of them would accidentally end up falling into supernatural creature Yeah, I, I guess that's what we can agree on, that Marissa is the more likely candidate to become a hermit. It's just testament to how unlikely Reimu is to become one. Exactly. <laughs> I guess that Marissa might become a yokai accidentally just because she tends to be a little bit hasty. Impulsive, that's the word. I live in the 1800s except less racist in my brain. Yeah. (laughs) I think the thing is, the one thing that Marisa is not impulsive about is that she's very, very careful actually about the possibility of becoming immortal. And it's something that she's shown being interested in many times, but every time she gets the opportunity or has to sort of entertain the possibility of it, she backs out. Yeah, I think that she, it's something that's very, very easy to get cold feet about, especially if you've met actual immortals and seen, well, these guys are kind of fucked up, aren't they? Like, immortals as in yokai or immortals as in the horai immortals either way there's kind of a definite permanent change in your personality yeah and moko specifically is like a walking exhibit of why not to become a horai even the hermits are basically stuck in the era that they became hermits and so marisa could easily be like do i really want to be stuck in the past even if she wanted to become a slightly more well-adjusted immortal because let's face it the former humans that we know that are yokai are the only one that we know that is what relatively well-adjusted is keine and she's only a half yokai Mm -hmm. i mean alice is reasonably well-adjusted she lives in the woods and doesn't talk to anybody (laughs) Yeah, but wouldn't you? I am not going to say that I'm (laughs) well-adjusted. I mean, the thing about Horus is that there's not much reason to become a, like, super immortal, like, more than immortal, when normal immortal will suffice. Yeah, sure, you can be killed, but A, it's really unlikely, and B, it would be really difficult to do that, even if somebody did decide, hey, I'm going to go kill this weird magician that lives in the woods. Yeah, plus Marisa's (laughs) already hard to kill. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure she would become harder to kill if she became a yokai. Marisa cannot be killed professional diagnosis. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Aaron says to her in the timeline where she becomes a yokai. (laughs) Should we start moving ahead? Question from Anon. I'm still catching up on the podcast, so apologies if this has already been addressed, but have you heard of the Alice is the killer in Dolls and Pseudo Paradise (laughs) theory? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? She's just a weirdo who lives in the woods. She's not going to commit murders. I feel like the Alice is the killer theory is just people trying to make Alice relevant to more things. Frankly, (laughs) a lot of the XYZ pre-existing Toho character is the killer in Dolls and Pseudo Paradise is just because they don't want to put in the effort to think about a new character with different motivations being the killer. Because it's obvious that the killer does not have a personality similar to anybody we know in Toho. It's obvious that the Pierrot is just clown piece. (laughs) (laughs) 
She is blonde. If we do want to engage with this and pick it apart, I think that the biggest flaw here is that Alice is more or less the same age as Remo and Marisa. It's mentioned that she became a magician fairly recently, so she was a human up until not too long ago. And Dolls in Pseudo Paradise took place quite long ago, in the days where people were still smoking opium regularly. Mm-hmm. Far too long ago to for Alice to really be the killer. And also, I don't think Alice is that edgy. Oh, also, the killer didn't become a yokai magician. The killer just became a normal run-of-the-mill yokai. I don't know if anyone is like more familiar with the theory to fill in any blanks, but I don't see any particular reason that it would be Alice. It's because dolls is in the title. Yeah, it's Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the house is indicated to have dolls in it. So maybe it's the house that Alice currently lives in. But I think that there's enough haunted houses in Gensokyo for there to be more than one house with creepy dolls in it. So actually there's more than two questions, but it's fine. What is your favorite crack ship? I'm not sure I have any like crack ships. One of my friends was into Yuka and Shizuha, so that sort of sits with me <laughs> as far as thematic crack ships goes. Okay, sure. I talked to you about one of my crack ships once, Katya, but I think I completely forgot which one it was. <laughs> I do remember this, but I also don't remember what ship it was. Exactly. It's like <laughs> Mioi and Koishi, clearly. neither of them realized it either that would be a funny ship by most series standards a lot of toho ships that are kind of mainstream would be crack ships in the sense that the only connecting factor is like you know being in adjacent stages or something or they talk together once yeah Mm -hmm. if i had to pick like an adjacent stage ship that i like it would be dormi and sagume well, they do have connections besides being adjacent stage ship. Yeah, they do. It's not a very cracky crack ship, and it's probably the main ship for both of them, even though there's, you know, not especially strong connection. Not really a person who does crack ships, generally speaking. In other fandoms, maybe, but like in Toho, I like the girls having connections with each other. Yeah, a crack ship kind of requires you to fall into it for some reason, or like come up with a fun idea that you roll with. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. Does Yechie and Saki count as a crack ship? Is it? Nah. No. Enemies to lovers is definitely like a known thing. Yeah. In this case, it's even just rivals to lovers. You're, you're shipping yeah. Sasunaru. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically like rival ships are right there with the most mainstream ones for the most part. What the heck would be a Toho crack ship? Like <laughs> Sasunaru? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, um... I think that Yomu and Raisin is actually like sort of the crack ship. Yeah. Yeah. Their only connection is being like fifth stage servants. And both servants, yeah. <laughs> both severely underappreciated. If you wanted to make a connection, Raisin and Ran would be just as connected as Yomu. And racing are. I mean, they did talk an imperishable night, or though. So, like, they had a conversation, which is more than many crack ships would qualify in a lot of fandoms. <laughs> Does a crack ship stop being a crack ship when it's actually pretty mainstream? In Toho, I think yes. Y- Yomu and Raisin, for instance, is even if the like basis for it is pretty cracky, it is probably one of the biggest ships for them. Mm-hmm. One ship I 
appreciate as a crack ship is like Parsi and Sakuya, which I think is like completely based <laughs> on that one Tumblr meme post, <laughs> which was like an out of context screenshot from Shorat Online or something. Oh yeah. God. <laughs> I actually can't remember who it was, but someone was like really into that ship and commissioning art of it and everything. And I think it was somebody who left the server. Yeah, but I mean, shout out to them. That's something I can really appreciate. Yeah, just on another level. I mean, I don't know if this really qualifies as a crack ship, but I do know people who ship Sega and Kaguya and are very passionate about oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that has, like, merit, though, because I think something's not a crack ship if you can easily see how their personalities would mesh together and they're capable of meeting. No, I, I, I kind of think it is. To me, a crack ship indicates a kind of, like, meme status. I think it's not just a rare pair, right? Yeah, it indicates yeah. basically there is no actual reason for the ship to exist. The person, the name for crack ships basically means you must have been on crack to have thought up a ship like this. So the real Sega crack ship would be Sega Komachi or Sega Eiki. <laughs> Yeah, Sega Eiki is the demonstration of a crack ship. Okay, those are both very powerful, and now those are my favorite yeah. crack ships. <laughs> yeah, we are very close to time. We can do the last question very quickly if it's very quick. Is it? Okay, well, there's two questions that left that I wanted to ask. Uh, all right, we can go. We'll see. Okay, what are your favorite and least favorite popular Toho fanworks? Uh. Um, <laughs> that's too long. We're doing that one later. I'm just going to say four hours Wolfus movie and leave it at that. <laughs> Absolutely cursed. Yeah, that's our answer to that. We kind of can maybe like address it later, but it is a kind of long one. Yeah, let's not spend any more time talking about how much time it will take. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so final question. Do you ever think about just how many people got into Toho back in the day, specifically because of Bad Apple, you and Owen was her, Cherno's perfect math class, Overdrive, Marisa stole the precious thing, and the like? Do you ever think about how, whether it's tomorrow or a decade from now, whether it's by the original creators or a brand new team, there's always the possibility that we all one day wake up and Bad Apple 2 is a reality? What does that mean? Memes don't have sequels. That's the thing. If someone makes Bad Apple 2, it's just Bad Apple with the Peggle 2 announcement guy as part of the dance. Like, <laughs> it's not a sequel. It's just part of the same meme. I don't think that meme songs can have the same spread that they did back in that particular time because that was basically at the crux of Nico Nico's boom basically yeah. yeah i think it's a fundamentally different toho fandom than we mm -hmm. have nowadays and then we probably will have in the future because the internet is becoming more and more regulated and less and less possible to create stuff that's viral just because it's viral and not because unfortunately things like baby yoda are part of extremely popular franchises mm -hmm. toho got popular because of memes like that and it wasn't popular yeah. and then got memed on i think the important thing to distinguish is that those were memes with toho and any future content is going to be a toho meme right yeah. Toho has arrived in has like a established place i can't decide how i'm supposed to like interpret this question i think the like meaningful part to discuss it is like could there be a new bad apple in the metaphorical sense 
Yeah, I think that's probably what it's attempting to say, which is why I went on about the internet is not what it was. Yeah, but the thing about original creators and brand new teams kind of took me off guard. I'm, I'm not sure how to take that. The original creators might cause a viral video of the same degree, but it's just a PV. Obviously, there's been a gazillion like covers of Bad Apple in the last decade. Alstromeria Records has been doing a million songs in the meantime, and people have been doing a million own versions of the original, like, famous Bad Apple PV, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I don't think there's ever going to be, like, a 20-minute spectacular of just, like, every new Toho character shadow form in yeah. the same sense that Bad Apple did. And I don't think there will be a cultural phenomenon in the way that Bad Apple was, because now there's not a what's this thing. There's, oh, this is Toho, or what is this, that's Toho. It's not going to break out again. Yeah, it's not something that's going to outpace Toho fanworks that are recognizable as Toho fanworks. I think one point of comparison is that there was like an updated version of Cerno's perfect math class for the, I think it was the 10th anniversary? 9th. 9th. Oh yeah, of course it was the 9th. <laughs> that had like some newer characters and a slightly different version of the song. And it didn't get a lot of hits at all. Yeah, that's not really a meaningful comparison for Bad Apple and either. Iosis is kind of getting more interest for their rock music rather than their meme videos nowadays, which yeah. I think shows some priorities yeah. in what just generally going to become popular and Toho related. Yeah. And the meme songs they do put out are just plain worse. Yeah. Mystically. Although Overdrive kind of sucks. Yeah. The old ones aren't necessarily great either, but there's some like at least fun ones to listen to in the mix. The newer ones are just like weird. Marisa stole the precious thing honestly still slaps. It does. <laughs> the newer ones they put out are more like weird noise techno. I don't even know what to call it. Yeah. But anyway, if the question is just, is there going to be another like huge breakout meme that brings a ton of people into the fandom? I think, I guess we had a consensus that probably not. I think the current breakout Toho meme is Raymu for Smash. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. yeah. If Raymu does get into Smash, that will be its own thing. And that's a very modern era meme, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not a meme in the same way Bohemian Rhapsody is a meme. It's not getting people into Toho. It's people who are into Toho sharing a joke. Or people who are into Smash sharing a joke ironically. I don't think there's any chance that a Bad Apple-type breakout is going to occur in the future. I think that from now on, the main Toho memes in public consciousness are all going to be sort of... Created by Toho fans. Yeah, Toho hijacks, in a way. Lol. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that about does it for questions. We sort of left a few off the table and didn't respond to them, and we'll talk about them later, probably. I do like the idea of doing mailbag questions every once in a while, because it lets our listeners sort of engage with us in a way that they wouldn't ordinarily by listening to the podcast. I don't think we should be making any, like, long-term decisions now. I mean, none of us have 2020 vision. (laughs) (laughs) and on that note Um, i believe it's time to end yes we're very sorry jt (laughs) please do your best everyone send positive energy to jt we're sending you good vibes the best vibes and this includes you in the audience we're sending you all good vibes unless you have rancid vibes yourself (laughs) (laughs) 
Thank you for listening. This is Outside World Cultism. Uh, wishing you a happy new year from 2020, even though recording this in 2019. Don't get too drunk. Mioi will get you. <laughs> yes. Be safe out there. I mean, this is coming out hopefully on the first and not the last day, right? <laughs> well, we, we that won't know. stop the worst people who we most need to worry about. And a fair few of them will be Toho fans. True. So be careful out there. Have a happy new year, but in moderation. Be safe. Yeah. Why the hell are you still listening to this? <laughs> yes. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.